Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a certain class of medications that every older person ideally would know about, because this is a class that affects brain function. So specifically, this is a group that geriatricians love to check for and discontinue if possible, one of those uh, four types of medication that we're often looking out for. And this class is known as anticholinergics. And I've mentioned them before on the podcast when talking about medications that are risky for the brain. But since I've never covered them in depth, they're kind of a tricky class in that it's a very uh, bigger and more diverse group of medications than most of the other types of medications that we look out for. So since I've never covered them in depth, I've decided to do that during this episode. I do have an article that I wrote about them actually a few years ago, which I will post a link to in the show notes. And so the thing about anticholinergics, as I'll be explaining, many, many different types of medication exert what we call anticholinergic activity in the brain and body. And don't worry, I'm going to explain what that means in just a little bit. Also, many commonly used over-the-counter medications are actually quite anticholinergic. I was actually just taking a quick look online while preparing this episode, and I found a article on a website providing health information that was supposedly reviewed by a pharmacist. And in the article, they said that anticholinergics are only available by prescription. So not true. They are actually available over the counter. That's part of why they are so commonly used. And in a little bit, I'll tell you which are the commonly used over the counter medications, which are anticholinergic. These medications are prescribed also, so many medications that are prescribed for a variety of reasons exert this anticholinergic effect on the brain and body. So this is a type of, uh, it's just very common for all kinds of people to be taking medications with anticholinergic activity, extremely common for older adults to be taking such medications, and most people have no idea that they are taking a medication that is known to negatively affect brain function and that has been associated with an increased risk of all kinds of outcomes that older adults are usually eager to avoid or minimize if they can, such as developing mild cognitive impairments, such as developing dementia, such as developing confusion and having to be hospitalized for confusion or delirium. These are all outcomes that have been associated with either the short-term or long-term use of anticholinergic medications. So by the end of this episode, you will have learned a lot more about these medications and will know about some of the most common ones that are out there. And specifically, here is what I'm going to cover. I'm going to start by explaining what it means for a medication to be anticholinergic. 
And then I'll briefly cover some of the more common aging health problems that have been associated with using these medications. Then I'll go into seven commonly used types of medication that are usually quite anticholinergic. So there I've sort of organized them into the reasons why they're most commonly prescribed or, or taken, because again, some of them are available over the counter, and so they require no prescription. And then at the end, I'll just review who should be especially careful about using medications that are anticholinergic and what you can do if you or someone you're caring for is taking a medication that you realize is anticholinergic. So now, what does this big long word mean to be anticholinergic? So basically, the term anticholinergic refers to a very general chemical property of these medications. And basically, the property is that they block acetylcholine, which is a key neurotransmitter in the body. And acetylcholine is used everywhere in your body. It's used quite extensively in the brain and actually in Alzheimer's disease and probably in other types of dementia, the medication that was developed and FDA approved to treat Alzheimer's, so the class of medication, the most commonly used one is Denepazil, brand named Aricept, and there are a few other medications in that category. They're called acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. But the whole purpose of those medications is to actually increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain because in Alzheimer's, people seem to not have quite enough of it or it's not working as well. And so the medication is there to try to boost it. So anticholinergics actually block the effect of acetylcholine. They get in the receptors and they mean that the acetylcholine doesn't work as well in transmitting its information from one neuron to another. And acetylcholine is not just in the brain. It is also widely used elsewhere in the body, mostly as part of what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. So you basically have two major involuntary nerve systems in the body. One is sympathetic and kind of generates the fight or flight response, kind of activates all your muscles and sharpens your mind, but slows down your guts so that you can put your blood flow towards running away or fighting. And so that's a sort of activating system. And then the other is the parasympathetic nervous system, which actually slows, mostly slows things down. So slows your heart rate down actually does activate, however, the intestines, but otherwise tends to, to, to counter that fight or flight response. So acetylcholine is widely used by a lot of the systems in the body that are on the parasympathetic side of things. And so that's why when people take medications that are anticholinergic, they experience commonly side effects such as dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, and since acetylcholine is involved in brain function and it blocks brain function, anticholinergics uh, also tend to cause sedation. And that, in fact, is one of the reasons why people often take these medications is because they would like to feel drowsier and more sedated. But there is this downside to it, which is that you're not only making yourself sleepier, but you are interfering with brain functions. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind. So as you'll see when I go through the seven types, there are just lots of medications designed for different specific symptoms or treatments that have this property of being anticholinergic, which means that if you were to sort of test them chemically or in the body, they are interfering with the work of that neurotransmitter acetylcholine. 
Now, I will share in the show notes a link to a nice list of medications that classifies medications based on how anticholinergic they are. It's pretty important to know that there's a little bit of a spectrum. So some of them are just weakly anticholinergic, so they interfere with acetylcholine, but just a little bit. And some of them are medium or strongly. And in general, clinically, the ones that we worry about are the ones with medium to strong activity. And the resource that I'm going to link to to share with you actually separates medications by whether they have low anticholinergic activity or medium to strong activity. And then if a medication is not on the list, then it's generally not considered anticholinergic at all. So now before we get into the seven types of commonly used medications that are anticholinergic, what are again the problems with anticholinergics? So they do cause the side effects that I just mentioned, sedation, dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, can probably affect balance in older people who are often already vulnerable to having balance difficulties. But then there are also these more significant problems that they've been associated with. So in particular, Research published in the last few years has found that cumulative use of anticholinergics over time seems to be associated with a higher risk of developing dementia. So that is definitely a concern. There's also been some other studies that have found that people who uh, use anticholinergics are more likely to be hospitalized for confusion or delirium. That probably reflects the fact that in people who already have brains that are vulnerable or have been damaged. And what we know right now about brains is that, you know, when somebody is developing a neurodegenerative process, for instance, such as Alzheimer's, the changes often happen, are ongoing in the brain uh, at least 10 years before the symptoms become obvious. So there are people who may not have a diagnosis and generally seem fine, but their brains have already been weakened in a way by these changes going on in their brains. And so when they use these medications, they're more likely to be tipped into frank confusion or delirium. Delirium, again, is that state of worse than usual mental function that is brought on by serious illness or possibly medication side effects. There was also another study that found that people taking anticholinergics, older adults taking anticholinergics, were more likely to transition from being cognitively normal to being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And I think, again, this reflects the fact that these medications are kind of interfering with one's normal brain function. It's still a little bit debated to what extent they actually, on their own, cause permanent damage to the brain versus just interfering and so kind of exposing any underlying damage that may have occurred due to another condition. Regardless of the exact mechanism, certainly within geriatrics, it's been known for quite a while that these seem to be harmful to older adults in that they, you know, they're likely to make uh, certain older people confused. So they have been on what is known as the Beers list of potentially inappropriate uh, medications for older adults to take for, for quite some time. So now let me get into specifics. I'm going to describe seven categories of commonly used medications that all tend to be quite anticholinergic. And so now we'll get into a couple specific examples of these medications that are worth spotting and avoiding or minimizing if you can. So group one, sedating antihistamines. So the prime example of this, uh, especially in the United States, would be diphenhydramine, which is the brand name Benadryl. 
So this is available over the counter. It has quite strong anticholinergic activity. And some people take it for their bad allergies or for hives, but actually a fair number of people just use it as an over-the-counter sleeping aid because they find that it makes them, them drowsy. So if that's you, then you want to realize that this is a medication where taking it every day could potentially affect your cognitive health down the line. And certainly as you're taking it is probably decreasing your, your brain function a little bit the next day. So what could you take instead? There are non-sedating antihistamines, such as loratadine, brand name Claritin. They are less anticholinergic, so they are safer for the brain. Now, they also tend to work a little bit less well for allergy symptoms. So that's the the trade-off one has to make. Next category of anticholinergic medication that you should know about would be the PM versions of over-the-counter painkillers. So many over-the-counter painkillers in the United States, such as acetaminophen, brand name Tylenol, and ibuprofen, brand name Motrin, come in a PM version, a nighttime formulation. This usually means that a mild sedative has been added, and often that sedative is a sedating antihistamine, either diphenhydramine or something similar. Same thing goes for the nighttime formulation of cough and cold medications, such as NyQuil. So... If you take these medications, sometimes you want to bear in mind that the PM version is anticholinergic. The daytime version generally is not, but the PM version is. Next group to keep in mind, also very commonly used by older adults, would be medications for overactive bladder. And that's because the bladder, bladder squeezing, uses acetylcholine. So anticholinergics help reduce uh, the squeeze of the bladder. So these bladder relaxants are uh, oxybutynin, brand named Ditropan, and tolteridine, brand named Detrol. Those are some common ones. There are a few other ones too that um, supposedly are a little bit more focused on the receptors in the bladder and are less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier. But as you'll see if you look at the list of anticholinergic medications, most medications for overactive bladder are considered fairly anticholinergic. Next group, number four, this would be medications for vertigo or motion sickness. So one of them is meclizine, brand name Anavert, and it's often prescribed to treat benign positional vertigo. It's also sometimes used to treat motion sickness. So and the irony is that there people are, you know, with their vertigo feeling dizzy and off balance. And so we treat it with a medication that can help with that vertigo feeling, but in of itself may probably impair people's balance a little bit because it does slow down the brain, basically. Next group of medications, number five, would be medications for itching. So these are actually also, again, antihistamines. These generally are just available by prescription They would include medications such as hydroxyzine, the brand name is Vistaril, and they can be prescribed for itching or for hives or for serious allergy symptoms. Next group, number six, medications for nerve pain. So there's an older class of antidepressants known as tricyclic antidepressants. They're not used very often for depression that much longer because the newer group of antidepressants, the SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, are generally considered safer and have more tolerable side effects. But the tricyclics 
are still sometimes used to treat nerve pain or pain from neuropathy. They're also sometimes prescribed to people to reduce the chance of chronic nerve pain after shingles. And so some commonly used tricyclics would include amitriptyline and nortriptyline, brand names Elevil and Pamelor, respectively. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago that the SSRI antidepressants were considered safer and more tolerable. There is one particular SSRI that has medium to high anticholinergic activity, and that is paroxetine, brand name Paxil. The others that are commonly used are much less anticholinergic, so that is one of the reasons why geriatricians will almost never prescribe Paxil if we need to prescribe an SSRI antidepressant to an older person. And then seventh category of commonly prescribed anticholinergics is muscle relaxants. So this would include a medication such as cyclobenzaprine, brand name Flexeril. They're often prescribed for back or neck pain. Now, there are many more medications that have strong anticholinergic effects. And as you saw, you know, these medications They fell into, um, so they have the chemical property of interfering with acetylcholine, but they fall into a lot of different symptomatic and purpose categories. And I think that's why, you know, it's been hard for us in medicine to convey to the public what is an anticholinergic because it's such a broad spread. But yes, you know, it basically refers to this chemical property more than to the type of symptom or organ that the medication acts on. And many more medications do have some strong anticholinergic effects. They tend to be prescribed less often, but if you want to check your own medications, I will share a link again in the show notes to a good comprehensive list that sorts them into medications with low anticholinergic activity and medium to high. You want to especially focus on the ones that are medium to high, and then you can also ask your pharmacist or your own health provider for help determining whether you are on anything that is anticholinergic. And if you do find that you're taking one of those medications, then the next step would be to talk about what are the alternatives and how that could be reduced. And in a moment, I'll talk a little bit more about some steps you can take if you discover that. But first, I want to come back to the question of, you know, so who should avoid anticholinergics? I think ideally, they're not really great for anyone. I mean, especially with the recent research suggesting that it's your cumulative exposure that might make a difference. Now, We say cumulative exposure. At the same time, I don't know that they've studied cumulative exposure for people in their 30s or 40s. For instance, there was a well-done study examining the cumulative use of strong anticholinergics and dementia that was published in 2015. But in that study, they they were looking at people who who were over age 65, and they looked back at their medication use over the previous 10 years. So again, that's, you know, sort of looking at people's medication use, uh, maybe in, you know, sort of later middle age. You could say, we don't really know, I think, uh, what happens if you're taking these medications in your 30s or your 40s. That said, there are some groups of people for whom I think it's especially important to consider looking at the medications you use and identifying any anticholinergics and then thinking about minimizing or stopping them if possible. So I would say you should especially make this effort to avoid or minimize these types of medications. If One, if you're worried about your memory either because you're older and you haven't noticed anything yet, but you don't want uh, your memory or thinking to get any worse. Or if you have uh, noticed anything that you're a little bit concerned about, maybe you have some subjective feeling of memory or thinking changes, or maybe you've even been evaluated and objectively they've they found that you have 
had some changes that qualify as mild cognitive impairment. So if you're worried about your memory, it's good to minimize or avoid these medications. If you do have a diagnosis, again, of mild cognitive impairment or of any form of dementia, then I would recommend minimizing or avoiding these because they do further depress the brain's ability. And in people who who have a diagnosis, they their brains already need to work at their maximum capabilities just to keep up with normal life. They have no sort of what we would call cognitive reserve. So in a, in a normal person, especially a normal younger person, you usually have more brain power available than you need most of the time. But in people who, who are older and have been diagnosed with dementia, usually the, the brain has already experienced a lot of damage inside and needs to be able to just work at its best for people to, to get by. So anyone with a diagnosis should avoid these, these medications. And then again, you know, if you want to reduce your risk for the future, it is probably a good idea. Let me finish with some suggestions on what you can do if you find that you are taking an anticholinergic. So what you can do really depends on a few things. One, it depends on why was the drug uh, prescribed or being taken and what are the available alternatives for managing that symptom or condition. So in many cases, there are non-drug alternatives available. So for instance, for all those people who are taking over-the-counter Benadryl just to sleep better, it's true that if if they stop it, they're going to initially have more difficulty sleeping. That is likely true. And we do know that there are safe and proven ways for people to improve their sleep without medication. Now, it's usually a little bit labor-intensive. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has a very good track record, but requires a little bit of effort and time to practice the strategies and programs for that are available online. They cost some amount of money. I don't think it's outrageous, but you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, could be a little bit of a financial investment for, for some people. If you're taking an anticholinergic for itching, there might be a topical alternative available, or, you know, in some cases, if you see a more holistic health practitioner, sometimes changing one's diet or environment can really improve skin symptoms as well. If an older person is taking an anticholinergic medication for, for incontinence, for the bladder, well, these medications, when they've been studied, you know, and many people only improve incontinence symptoms a little bit. So you'd have to ask yourself, is it making a big enough difference that we think it's worth the risk? Have we tried the non-drug options for managing incontinence, such as bladder training or timed toileting, or in some cases, doing Kegel exercises or other kinds of pelvic floor exercises might help as well. So again, it really all depends on what is the problem for which the medication was prescribed. For back pain, again, a medication like Flexeril doesn't even have you know a great track record in randomized studies. A lot of back pain gets better with time and especially with physical therapy and exercise. So it does come down to what is the medication being prescribed for, but in many cases, there are alternatives available that are either not anticholinergic or aren't a medication in the first place. And of course, the non-medication methods of managing the symptom or problem is what's usually safest for older people. Now, I do periodically have people comment on the site and they say, oh my God, I just have this terrible life-threatening allergy. I have to take this strong antihistamine. What do I do? So, I mean, my answer there is that for every medication, really, the question is, do the likely benefits outweigh the likely harms and what are your alternatives? Now, for people who have life-threatening 
allergies, the benefit of taking that medication is quite substantial and probably outweighs the harms and they may have no good alternative. So, so there, yes, it's, it's unfortunate that to take this medication, you have to accept the risks and downsides of anticholinergics, but there it's worthwhile. And so really our concern in geriatrics is that many people are taking these medications when maybe it's not so essential, or you know maybe the, the benefit they're getting is quite small, or we haven't yet tried those alternatives. And most of all, the problem is that people haven't been informed of the risk and asked whether they think it's worth it for the benefit that they're getting out of the medication, and they haven't been invited to try something else. So, so for instance, earlier I mentioned benign positional vertigo, quite common in older people. So there's, there's proven physical therapy. It's specialized. It's called vestibular rehabilitation. That is shown to be quite effective in treating benign positional vertigo, but many people are not offered this therapy. When they are given that diagnosis, they're just prescribed the meclizine, brand name Anavert, which is anticholinergic. So again, if you find that you or one of your older relatives are taking anticholinergics, you know, the first step is to ask what kind of symptom or problem is this medication prescribed for? If it's over the counter, why are you taking it? And then the next step would be to talk to your healthcare providers and ask if it would be possible to reduce or stop or switch to a safer alternative. Because the goal is that if you do take medication, to make sure you're informed of the risks and that the likely benefits outweigh the side effects or likely harms. And now that's all I'll say today about anticholinergic medications. Now, if you are interested in reviewing medications with an eye towards brain health and avoiding those that diminish brain function or are associated with cognitive decline, there are a few other major groups that I didn't cover today such as the benzodiazepine sedatives and tranquilizers, uh, some other sedatives, antipsychotics. But those are all sort of listed in another article, which I'll post a link to in the show notes, for types of medication to avoid if you're worried about your memory. So hopefully all of this equips you to take better care of your brain health or to help out somebody that you care about. And if you have any questions about anticholinergics in particular, please feel free to post them on the show notes page. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.